Uh, I started last time, I think I didn't ask the pastor afterwards, but we started a new series on covenant theology, and I did an introductory uh, uh, presentation of what is a covenant, basically going through O. Palmer Robertson's basic grid of, of what, what do we mean by the word covenant. I'm going to talk today, uh, we're still doing an introductory material, I want to look at the covenants of the Bible. Uh, will be our topic for tonight. And here's some recommended reading. O. Palmer Robertson's The Christ of the Covenants. And then they made him do a short version that he doesn't like, but I think other people do like it, called Covenant, God's Way with People. I really like Peter Golding's book on covenant theology. And I recently saw a recently published book by our friend Richard Belcher, The Fulfillment of the Promises of God, An Explanation of Covenant Theology. I've looked through that and I'm very pleased with it. Some books if you're interested in further reading. Now, when people say to us, uh, what's in the Bible? Uh, we tend to answer, well, you got the Old Testament and New Testament. Of course, the Latin testamentum is a translation of the Greek diatheke, which means covenant. Literally, it's Old Covenant and New Covenant. And you may know, well, there's different types of literature. There's the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, the Torah. There's the writings, uh, Joshua through Second Chronicles, uh, and beyond that even. Uh, the poetry. The prophets, then in the New Testament, you have the Gospels and Acts, the records of Christ in the early church, you have the New Testament epistles, and you have the book of Revelation, which actually is a New Testament epistle. It's John's epistle to the Asians. But that, we might say that's the case. But the Bible's own structure, its, in, its internal structure, is in terms of covenants. What I want to look at tonight is the development of the different covenants in the Bible that structure the history that provides the message of God. I've often commented that the, the, one of the distinctive things about the Christian faith is that we believe things are true because of things that happened. We are a historical religion, as it were. God has done great things. In fact, this is what the Bible is. The, the Bible is the record of the great redemptive deeds of the living God and then the, uh, the, the, uh, the Holy Spirit-inspired explanation for what they mean. That's what the Bible is. In fact, if you look at why were the books of the Bible written, because God did something. You start off with the five books of Moses. He did the Exodus. The event that precipitates the writing of the books of Moses is the Exodus from Egypt, and then the rest of the, the, the Torah is the explanation of that and the implications of that. The next great thing God does is, is the conquest of Canaan, the entry of Israel into the promised land, and that's recorded in Joshua, and we also have the meaning of it. It carries on in the time of the judges. The next great thing he does is the Davidic kingdom in First and Second Samuel. Actually, I would say judges is more about that than, than looking backwards. The book of Ruth is about David. Uh, and so on and so forth. The, the last great thing that he has done uh, and, and it's the last thing he will do of this nature before the end of history is the coming of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The apostles frequently talk about in these last days, we upon whom the end of the ages has come. You get this language where we're the end times people. They don't mean we're living in the seven years prior to the second coming of Jesus. They're meaning that, the, that we're the people who are living in salvation as a result of the first coming of Jesus. And the whole New Testament is an explanation of that. Anyway, uh, now that being the case, that history is structured in the Bible in terms of the unfolding of God's covenants. God's way of relating to people is by means of covenant. Why is that? Because covenant is an expression of lordship. 
and he is the Lord. By the way, uh, one of the arguments I have for church membership is that not, it's not only the way that God relates to us as covenants, the way he has us relate to one another is covenants. And marriage being uh, the most common one, church membership is another kind of covenant relationship. And so uh, these are the covenants. The Adamic covenant, also called the covenant of works, the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant in Jesus Christ. That's what I'm going to cover tonight in an overview way. Now before I do that, it's helpful. We, we can look at what's going on, particularly in the Old Testament, and we actually will see this in non-biblical materials as well. If you look in the mid-second millennium, a time of Hammurabi or a little later than that actually, uh, and you'll see that there was a prevailing covenant form that uh, was widely used in the world of the Old Testament. Again, particularly the, the second millennium world around the time of Moses. Um, and uh, the, the, the Hittites are known for the Hittite covenant form. By the way, people say, well, the Bible gets it from them. I actually think it's the other way around. <laughs> the reason you see these things is because it's the way God relates to people, and the analogy is not in the Bible. The analogy is in secular culture. But uh, when you get covenant documents, and Deuteronomy is a classic example. It's well argued that Deuteronomy is a covenant document. And Deuteronomy is a hugely important book of the Old Testament. Uh, it's really the, uh, it play, what, what the Constitution of the United States is to our nation, the book of Deuteronomy is. It's the Constitution of the theocratic state of Israel in the Promised Land. And it starts with a preamble. These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel, but beyond the Jordan in the wilderness. You'll get this in all ancient covenant forms. And then there's a historical prologue. Okay, this is a covenant document. Let's talk about the history that brought us here. And you'll see that in the early chapters of the book of Deuteronomy, particularly Deuteronomy chapter 1 to 3. The Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are today as numerous as the sands of the, of the of stars of heaven. Uh, then we set out from Horeb, that's Mount Sinai, and went through all the great and terrifying wilderness, yet you would not go up. This is God speaking, but you rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. Uh, then we turned and journeyed into the wilderness, so on and so forth. The, the covenant documents will have a historical recitation of the relationship. And then the conditions of the covenant are set before the people. You get this in Deuteronomy chapter 4. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and rules that I'm teaching you and do them that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. And so Moses, speaking on behalf of God, and remember Deuteronomy is taking place right before the book of Joshua. It's the end of Moses' minute. It's the end of the Exodus. They're on the fields of Moab, about to cross over into the promised land. And before they go over, he lines them all up and goes, okay, let's get ourselves straight. And the condition of blessing under the Mosaic covenant, in this case, is going to be obedience. And so there's conditions, obligations of the covenant. And then there's sanctions and curses in case you don't honor those obligations. Deuteronomy 27, uh, cursed be anyone who does not conform to the words of this law by doing them. By the way, Deuteronomy 27 and 28 is very chilling reading because it's, uh, it explains the history of the Jewish people uh, in very terrifying terms in terms of the sanctions in the event that they should break the covenant, which, of course, they did. 
So you have a preamble, you have a historical prologue, you have the conditions of the covenant, the, the, the sovereign Lord says, okay, here's what, you got, here's what I'm expecting of you, and then here's what's going to happen if you don't do it, and then here's the blessings if you do. Covenants have promises and blessings. Deuteronomy 28, if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above the nations of the earth. Blessed shall you be in the city. Blessed shall you be in the fields, so on and so forth. The blessings that he promises if the condition is met. Now, another interesting feature of covenants is there's there's signs. We would call them sacramental signs. And there's other kinds of tokens. Uh, This is the Mosaic Covenant. The Sabbath is really the sign of the Mosaic Covenant. And this quote from Deuteronomy 15 is about the year of Jubilee, the seventh year Sabbath system. Uh, At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. This is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what has been lent to his neighbor. I I pull those verses out as representative. The sign, there's a sign of every covenant. And in the Mosaic covenant, it was the Sabbath. And then you had the feast as well. Observe the month of Habib and keep the Passover to the Lord your God. And so the, the Sabbath and the feasts in that particular covenant. And then a covenant document will conclude with provisions for the storing of the document. Uh, Then Moses wrote this law, the book of Deuteronomy, and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And Moses commanded them at the end of every seven years, a time set for the year of release, at the Feast of Booths, Feast of Tabernacles, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. And so it's placed in the Ark of the Covenant, and it's going to be placed in the tabernacle and then the temple, and every seven years provision is made. The the covenant, Deuteronomy, is to be read to the people. Now, I tell you that because that's going to be a very helpful grid for looking at all the different covenants. Now, there's three basic types of covenants seen in the Bible. The first is a parity covenant. Uh, and this is, these are not covenants with God. God does not do parity covenants with us. But the great examples in Genesis where, where, uh, Abraham and Abimelech make a covenant over the use of their, of their, of their, uh, uh wells at Beersheba. And so it's kind of a, a contract. That is a biblical kind of covenant, although we don't see it in God's covenants with us. Another kind is called the royal grant covenant. That's where the suzerain, that, that's kind of the technical term, the Lord, who in this case is God, uh, he just promises things. It's a royal grant. There's no obligation. There's no condition. There's no threatened curse. There are some covenants in the Bible that are royal grant covenants. God just promises them. And, and, and the promises are, are, are obligatory to him, but there's no obligation on our part. Not immediately anyway. And then there is the primary form, what I just went over, the suzerain-vassal covenant. You go, that sounds awkward. Well, God is the suzerain. Uh, God is the Lord. God, if, we, if we think, well, I, I struggle with the idea of God being suzerain and I'm the vassal. Well, start in Genesis 1-1, y'all, because that's, he's, he's the, who does God think he is? God or something? Yes. He is the Lord. He is the creator. And so you have the treaty of the great king. He is the great king, and he imposes his covenants upon us. Deuteronomy is a great example. Now, with that introduction, let's just, and I'm going to be very general tonight, but uh, let's look at the various covenants. We start with the, 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 the covenant in Eden. 
You know, it's very interesting. As soon as you, you get Genesis 1, you get the creation of, of the heavens and the earth, and that develops through the seven days of the first creation week. And then in Genesis 2, you have God's creation of, of, of covenant life. Genesis 2, he creates the man and the woman. He, he marries them. He creates the family. Uh, and he, he works those things out. It, it's the covenant life that he gives. It's not a surprise that in the middle of Genesis 2, God makes, he imposes a covenant upon Adam in the garden. It's a, the, the Adamic covenant. It, we call it the covenant of works. I've, in fact, I've got a whole lesson on the covenant of works, but... Um, the parties are God and Adam, Adam being the covenant head for not only Eve, but for all of his progeny. So that's us too. Adam as the covenant representative of the entire human race that's to come. And the covenant of works is a suzerain vassal treaty. Uh, Adam and God don't sit together. God doesn't say to Adam, you know, Adam, you know, I want to live with you. What are your thoughts? That's not, not how it works. You know, as you know, it's a, it's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You may eat of any tree in the, in the, in the garden, but of the tree, you may not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which, by the way, I don't think there's anything physically different per se. We're not told about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's a symbol of man's submission to God. Cornelius Van Til put it this way. Uh, it is a way of saying that God will be our epistemic center. You go, what does that mean? He, what he says is true. We're not going to decide for ourselves what is true. We're not going to decide for ourselves what is good, what is evil. That's why it's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, that, it, it's, we're not, and the eating of that tree that was forbidden was a way of being autonomous. No, they were to eat of the tree of life. That's the symbol of God as the epistemic center. Uh, the tree of the knowledge of evil is, is human society. I am the captain of my own soul. I am my epistemic center. What is true is what I... Boy, is that America today? I am what I feel I am. There's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God says, well, look, on the day that you eat of that tree, you're forbidden to do so. That's the, that's the condition. Perfect personal obedience as symbolized by the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And here's the sanction. On the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so the, the condition is obedience, in this case, not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which means n- no autonomy, that we, we're God's people. He's our Lord. Our ears are open. He speaks, and we, we believe and obey. That's what's going on there. And if you eat of it, then you shall surely die. Now, there's an implied promise, uh, and that is eternal blessing. Uh, and there is a sacramental sign, namely the tree of life itself. I don't think there's anything physically different about the tree, or it wasn't because of any, maybe it was physically different, we're not told, but it's not because of the physical properties of the tree of life. It's not magical, it's a sacramental tree. It is a symbol of the life that comes in obedient fellowship and communion with God in righteousness. That's the sign of the Adamic covenant. Now, how does that relate to us? Well, as I said, Adam represented us. And when he fell, we fell in him. And so original sin is not a description of what Adam did, but what Adam's sin did to us. 
And we are born guilty. We are born with a corrupt nature. We have the imputation of Adam's guilt. We have the, we, we, we have by natural generation, we partake of the corruption of sin because he violated the covenant of works. So the very first covenant in the Bible is broken by man with the result of death. When we look at the covenant of works in greater detail, we're going to spend a lot of time in Romans 5, where Paul asks, why death? Because of this. This is why we have death, the the violation of the covenant of works. This defines, the breaking of this covenant defines the problem of our world. By the way, this is why we can't get rid of biblical creationism. It might be... It might be convenient in a foolish sort of way to just kind of tolerate evolution and secular denials of of creation. And that way we'll get along. Many Christians say, well, if we just go along with evolution, they won't think we're stupid and they'll listen about Jesus. That is a fool's errand for a lot of reasons. But another reason is all you lose is the grand meta narrative of the entire scripture. Because Genesis 2 and Genesis 3 define the problem for which the rest of the Bible is a solution. The problem is the guilt and corruption of man in sin because of the fall of our race in Adam. So the covenant of works, the Adamic covenant, is rather important to the Christian faith. It is the biblical description. The rest of the Bible is the remedy for the breaking of this covenant. Thanks, Adam. Now you get a few chapters down the road in Genesis, and by the way, God does, I've got another, I've got of course a long lecture on the covenant of grace. God does promise to Adam and Eve in the garden that there will be salvation through Jesus Christ. He proclaims in various ways Jesus Christ to them, the, the seed of the woman. And then you, you have the two humanities that we get to Genesis 4 and 5. You have the small remnant, you have, you have Lamech. And, and the mass of humanity is very evil, even after the flood. You know, Lamech writes the first song in, in human history. And, it, and, it, and the, what is the genre of the first human musical composition? Gangster rap. You know, and, and, and the song of Lamech and, and Genesis, what, uh, uh, four or five, Genesis five. Of course, you have Genesis four, the Cain and Abel story. And it's, uh, you know, somebody dissed me and I killed him. Well, there we go. There's the line of the ungodly, but you also have the remnant of the godly. Uh, then you have Noah's flood in Genesis 6. And after God has judged the human race, he's wiped out everyone except for Noah and his family. He then enters into a covenant with them, and this is a royal grant covenant. The parties are God and Noah with his offspring and all living things that emerge, you know, the new world emerges from the ark. All the species, all the Januses, is probably a better way to put it, come out of the ark, the, the human, everybody who is alive today is a descendant of Noah for this reason. And this is a royal grant treaty. The Noahic covenant doesn't have any obligations upon us. It doesn't have any sanction or curse. It's a mere promise from God. Never again will the flood destroy the earth. In fact, he gives language that he's going to preserve the creation order, which is a rather important promise in light of what just happened. Because of, you know, one of the problems is when Adam and Eve get out of, God cleanses the world of sin until the ark opens. <laughs> and then Noah and his family gets out and sin comes right back into the world, as we soon learn in Noah's uh, situation with his family. 
And so the problem of sin is not remedied by the fall, but God promises in a way a covenant history, the history of the world in which the redemptive work of Jesus Christ will take place. Uh, there is a sacramental sign to the Noahic covenant, and that's the rainbow. Uh, I, I love how uh, Genesis 9 puts it. You know, when, when, I hope you, when you see, of course, in our day, the rainbow is the, is the emblem of the homosexual movement. Uh, we should not accept that, by the way. The rainbow is the emblem. God decides what a rainbow is. A rainbow means the promise of, a, of, of salvation in the world that he is preserved. I, I do think, remember in Gen- Revelation 4, it's actually a complete circle. We're shown the rainbow surrounds the throne of God. I think the idea of the rainbow is both the beauty of God and he's going to protect the earth from another flood. It's, a, it's the dome. And so when you and I see a rainbow, don't think of the LGBT movement. Think about God's covenant promise to Noah. But what the text does not say, when you see the rainbow, some of you know this, the text says, when I see the rainbow, I will remember my covenant. Now, it's not that God is going to forget his covenant, but when you and I see the rainbow, we remember that he remembers his promise. And my friends, the world will not end until the day of God's appointment, and that day will be the second coming of Jesus Christ. The world will not end until Jesus Christ returns. How do we know that? God's promise through Noah. Uh, and and that, te- that, that, that idea that the sacramental sign is not so much for us to see, but for him to see, he ordains it, he administers it, but then it's for him to see is going to play out in covenant theology. Uh, the next covenant is the Abrahamic covenant. And this is the inauguration of the covenant of grace. You are saved because God will keep the promises he made to Abraham about you. I find it very comforting. I'm saved because I believe in Jesus Christ. That's true. But my believing in Jesus Christ will lead to my salvation because God made a covenant with Abraham 4,000 years ago, roughly. And he's going to keep that promise. Uh, the biblical source is Genesis 12, 15, and 17. And Genesis 15 is where God tells Abraham to go out and look in the night sky and number the stars. If you're able to number them, so shall your offspring be. And so the parties of the covenant of grace, the Abrahamic covenant, are God and Abraham together with his spiritual offspring. Now, by the way, notice in all three covenants we've looked at, when God is dealing with someone, he deals with their offspring together with them. It's going to be a common theme in God's covenant dealings with us. He deals with us, but he sees our offspring in us and and, and together with us. And that was true of, of Adam. It was true of Noah. In Abraham's case, it's his spiritual offspring. Paul will say in Galatians, he is our father in the faith. He's the father of all who believe in Jesus Christ. This is a royal grant covenant. There is a condition, but it is essentially the bounty of a gracious God. God's gracious arrangement by which sinners will be saved. Now, the condition is faith. The faith in God's promises is not a New Testament innovation. It has always been God's way in the covenant of grace. The purpose of the covenant of grace is to provide a gracious remedy for the breaking of the covenant of works. Uh, and so the condition is that we must believe, we must receive 
in faith what God has revealed. Um, and the, the, in fact, God puts the sanction upon himself should he not keep it. Um, in Genesis uh, 15, when, when you remember Genesis 15 starts off with Abraham complaining that he has no offspring, his wife's old and barren, and God takes him out and says, number the stars. And then they have the Hittite treaty formula where they sever the animals and they cut a covenant and there's like a cow that's been cut in half and its entrails are there and there's all these goats or whatever it was. We're not giving the details, but we're giving some of them. And then normally the two parties would pass through the severed half. You wouldn't want a really long wedding dress and that kind of wedding ceremony with all the blood and gore getting on your train. Um, and the idea is, if I break this covenant as you pass through the severed pieces, let what happened to these animals happen to me. That, that's the way that covenant form worked. Now, when God, if you remember in Abraham's case, God alone goes through the severed pieces. Abraham sees a trance. He sees a smoking fire pot going through it, and the Lord speaks to him. What God is saying, the obligation is on me. I will keep this covenant and so God, and God is saying, if I don't keep my promises to you, Abraham, and to us in Jesus Christ, then what happened to these animals will happen to me. The promised blessing to Abraham is the, is the land and the seed. The promised land and, and, and the people of faith. By the way, that's, even in Genesis 1, there's a land and seed structure. The first three days are creating the habitation. The second three days are creating the inhabitants. When you get to Revelation 21 and 22, you have the eternal city and you have the bride. So the, the Bible covenant theology depicts salvation in terms of the land and the seed. Ultimately, it will be the new heavens and the new earth and the glorified, redeemed people of God. That structure seen there. The, the token, the sign, the sacramental sign of the Abrahamic covenant was circumcision. And in Genesis 17, you have uh, the, the, the institution of circumcision. Now, how is that related to us? You go, because here I am reading my Old Testament. I'm reading Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. And I'm going, what does this have to do with me? Well, much in every way. Because you are the offspring that he was talking about. I, 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 I have to admit I'm a big Rich Mullins fan, and his great song, Sometimes by Step, which has a line, Sometimes I think of Abraham, how one star he saw had been lit for me. That's excellent theology. He wasn't, not all of his theology was excellent, but the theology of that song is excellent. And, um, uh, and that's literally true. You and I are, repre- and I can't help but think of that when I go out and there's a night sky and there's stars, I think, well, one of those represents me. Uh, we are the offspring. We, we are saved in Christ as God keeps his covenant promise to Abraham. Also, as Paul says in Galatians, there's a singular offspring who is Christ. And through our union with the offspring, we are together the offspring given to Abraham. Now, that's going to require a lot more teasing out. i got a whole presentation on that, but that's the Abrahamic covenant. The inauguration of the covenant of grace. Only after this comes the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant is the establishment of the people of Israel as a nation state in the Promised Land, in Canaan, in the Old Testament. You'll find it in Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. The entire Pentateuch is about that. 
Um, now, one thing, there is a works principle, as I'll point out, in the Mosaic Covenant, but the Mosaic Covenant is an administration of the covenant of grace in Abraham. These covenants have a cumulative effect. Uh, when, God, when, when God gave the covenant of works and when man broke the covenant of works, that didn't go away. <laughs> that has to be dealt with. We, we, we then, all of history is spent living east of Eden, living under the curse, living under the corruption of sin, the guilt of sin. That's all there. When God makes his covenant with Abraham, that creates a context of grace for what happens. And then within that covenant of grace... You have this uh, suzerain vassal treaty, this lordship arrangement on the basis of obedience that is called the Old Covenant or the Mosaic Covenant. The parties in this case are God and Israel as a nation. And it is a suzerain vassal treaty. You know, people, a lot, I would say a lot of the confusion in covenant theology and there's a lot of confusion about covenant theology a lot of it has to do with rightly understanding the mosaic covenant and i have heard reputable scholars say there are there is no works in the mosaic covenant and i want to go i mean come on uh in, in genesis 24 all the people answered with one voice and said all the words that the lord has spoken we will do that was the inauguration service for the mosaic covenant so Israel is placed as a nation state in the promised land on the principle of works. They will keep their status by obedience. And when you get to Jeremiah, which we spent so much time studying, which is at the other end of the Mosaic Covenant, when it's broken, he's going to point out in great detail how they did not obey. And they're suffering the sanction of the death of the nation, that's what the exile was, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, the Babylonian exile, was a sanction of death upon the nation of Israel. And that was the, 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 the curse, the removal of their blessings and privileges, God's curse and the death of the nation. The promise is, I will be your God and, I will, and, and you will be my people. Now, the provisions uh, were the sacrifices of atoning blood. It's a, it's a generalization. I will say this, an individual is saved in the time of the Mosaic Covenant through the Abrahamic Covenant because the gospel is being preached in the sacrifices, the types of Christ, the rituals, the, the blood atonement that's going on. An individual is saved through faith in Jesus as he's represented in the Mosaic Covenant under the covenant of grace, but the nation dies as a result of their sin. And the sacramental sign is the Sabbath and the feast. Now, how does it relate to us? Well, the church is the new Israel. As uh, Hebrews uh, 8 shows and Romans 11 shows very clearly, we have been grafted into that Israel. There is a continuity in Christ as he is, Jesus becomes the Israel of one that was always intended. In him, we enter into Israel. Now, you also have the Davidic covenant. While this is going on, God establishes the Davidic throne. This is a royal grant treaty, covenant. There's no obligation. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes promises to David that he will bestow an eternal throne through his house. The parties are God with David and Israel with him, and ultimately David stands for Christ. There is no sanction. There's no curse there. The blessing is a royal son will sit on David's throne forever. 
And the token is the throne of the house of David. Now, how does that relate to us? Because you and I, we're not spiritually, redemptively, we are not part of a democracy. We are part of a kingdom. And this is the throne of the king of the kingdom under which we find salvation, namely Jesus Christ of the house of David. The final biblical covenant is a new covenant in Christ. Jeremiah 31 teaches on it. You get it in Luke 22. Uh, Hebrews 8 talks about it in great detail. Jesus says, this cup is poured out for you is a new covenant in my blood. Uh, The parties are God and Christ's people. Christ's people are the elect. Those give. How how often in in the book of the Gospel of John does Jesus speak of those whom the Father has given to me? And those, they're the party, they're the people to whom the covenant of grace in Christ. This is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant in the coming of Jesus Christ. It's a royal grant treaty. Uh, the condition is faith, faith in him. How many times does the New Testament say, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved? It's by grace alone, but that grace is through faith. And when we, we'll study this, but I've got a lecture on this as well. Uh, uh, the condition, the reason it's grace is God establishes the, the condition, but he also fulfills the condition in us. Our belief is not something that we have contributed. It is something God has contributed to us. The very fact that I believe is the gift of God, lest anyone should boast. Not of works, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says. And so the condition is faith. Uh, for, the sanction is for those outside the covenant, namely eternal death. Those in the covenant of grace with Jesus, the new covenant, receive the imputation of his righteousness. We receive the indwelling Holy Spirit. We become heirs of eternal life. And the the sacramental signs are baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now there's a continuity with the prior covenants. Uh, Circumcision now comes to expression through baptism. Uh, The the feasts, particularly Passover, uh, get simplified into the Lord's Supper. Now, how does it relate to us? We are saved through faith in Jesus Christ. Well, here's our covenant history. And you may be confused, then just back off, because I'm going to cover all this in more detail. This is the biblical story. Uh, God created the heavens and the earth. He created man. He made a woman that they would be one flesh, that they would be married and they would have children. And he placed them in the garden and he made a covenant of works. He is the Lord. That man is to obey him, symbolized by eating of the tree of life and not of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that covenant was broken. That is the great tragic event. By the way, this is why Christians are always going to differ with our non-Christian friends about everything in some respects. Uh, because the fundamental, our understanding of the problem of the world is distinctively biblical. Imagine, well, many of us can imagine, if you didn't know that, then you think the problem is something much more surface. No, it's, it, it's that deep at the beginning of human history. And then God made a promise in Noah's covenant. He promised that he would withhold judgment until the end. There would be seed time and harvest. The years would roll by. Season would follow season until salvation was, was concluded. He hung the rainbow in the sky. And then God calls Abram, this pagan, and he makes his promise to him. God's promise of eternal life through faith in him. Eternal life being pictured in the land and the seed a covenant of grace through faith. Uh, Then the nation of Israel 
is the Mosaic Covenant is formed of those whom God... Of course, remember when God goes to Egypt, he says, I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and I remember my promise to Abraham. That's why I'm saving you. And he forms into, into a nation. That nation then has the Mosaic Covenant. He gives a Davidic covenant, the promise of the throne on which our Lord Jesus even now sits. And then all of these covenants come into fulfillment when, when that promised son, that promised savior, that promised lamb, that promised king is born of the Virgin Mary and he lives, he, he, he lives the life we should have lived. He died the death we deserve to die. He brings in the fulfillment of all the covenants in himself, the fullness of salvation through faith in Jesus. That is our covenant history. I'm going to conclude with some questions and answers. Here's some questions. Are all the covenants different or are they really one? That's a really important question. And this is going to cut to the difference between us and, say, dispensationalists. Uh, We believe there's a fundamental continuity, and I've been describing that. Once you have the covenant of works, and then when God gives the covenant of grace, he inaugurates it through Abraham, you have a, there's, there's development, but there's a fundamental continuity. We, as Paul says, you know, what does the song go? Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, so are you. Let's all praise the Lord. That's a, that's a view that there's fundamental continuity between these covenants, but we also note there are different administrations. And so on the one hand, you have dispensationalism, which sees a fundamental discontinuity. There's a rat that it was when you're reading in the Old Testament, you're reading under the Abrahamic covenant, you're looking at somebody else's religious heritage, namely the Jewish people. No, that's not true. When you and I read the Old Testament, that's our religion, that's our salvation heritage. That's as Paul says, these were examples for us. Uh, and so, uh, but on the other hand, there are some people who call themselves reformed, but who practice what's called hypercovenantalism or monocovenantalism, and they they argue it's just complete continuity. We argue a fundamental continuity. I, I was talking to a dear Reformed Baptist friend who I think very highly of. I think last summer I was speaking at his church, and he said the problem with you Presbyterians is you view the covenants fundamentally in continuity. And I said, guilty as charged. <laughs> that, but it's not a problem. It's the very thing you see in the apostles. Uh, and uh, But on the other hand, we're going to know there's a difference between the, the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. We're going to note that there's different administrations. We are not currently living under the Mosaic Covenant. There's a continuity of message. The gospel was preached in those times. Fundamental continuity, but we're going to note the differences between them. Another question, how are people saved prior to Christ? And the answer is the same way, through faith in Jesus. Since Adam's fall, people have always been saved only through faith in Christ and his gospel. This is why the very day of the fall, God curses, here's a good question, to whom is the gospel first preached? The answer is Satan in the form of the serpent, you know, the the seed of the woman. uh, You will bruise his heel, he will crush your head. And then in Genesis 3.21, I love that verse, he enacts penal substitutionary atonement and imputed righteousness. Animals are sacrificed in their place. They do not die. The sacrifices die in their place. And then they're clothed with the garments of the innocent animals who died in their place. That's the gospel. And so on the very day of the fall, God preaches 
The salvation that will come through faith in Jesus Christ. No one has ever been saved any other way than through personal faith in Jesus. And you go, well, well, hold on. How is a guy in, you know, 900 B.C. supposed to believe in Jesus? Through the types of the Old Testament, through the sacrifices. He wouldn't have known the name Jesus. But as David in Psalm 51, when he says, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean, Hyssop was the brush that the priests used to sprinkle the blood upon the people. David is saying, forgive me through the blood which points forward to the blood of the Messiah who's going to come. I mean, the more I study the Bible, the more I believe they had more of an understanding of the gospel than we think they did. And when Isaiah says, come let us reason together, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they had... A theological revelation of it. I think they had a pretty solid understanding of salvation through faith in the blood of the Lamb and by the imputation of his righteousness. That's the only way anyone has ever been saved. Um, And yet Christ and his gospel are presented differently in different covenants. Uh, How does the substance of a previous covenant relate to me? Well, they're all still operating. You know, the, 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 the Adamic covenant bears upon you greatly, particularly if you're a, a mother and you, you're, that child comes out as sinful. Why? Because, thank you, Adam, because the covenant of works is still going on. The Adamic covenant, the problem that we die is because of the broken covenant of Adam. And so, uh, we, they all find fulfillment in Christ. And uh, all the promises become ours. All the covenant promises, we become the heirs of them through faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, listen to 1 Corinthians ten eleven. Just think of the language he's using. Now, these things happened to them, the Old Testament, as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages have come. Now, what he means is we're living in the time of the, the, the fulfillment of, of all that the covenant ever meant. All the covenant aims were living at the, at the, at the, in those times on which the end of the ages has come. The time of the fulfillment of all the covenant aims of God and all of his promises are filled up in Christ for us. Do the Ten Commandments have any significance for Christians? Yes. The purpose of the new covenant is to fulfill the aims of the old covenant. By the way, the Ten Commandments express the moral, the unchanging moral law of God. There's a thing going on today called New Covenant Theology. And it's in non-reformed people who are trying to be respectful of the covenant language, but they're not going the whole way. And they actually argue that, again, it's radical discontinuity. The Mosaic Covenant has nothing to say to us. And they actually argue the Ten Commandments, they, they're, not, they're not eternal, and they're not eternally binding. It was just a provisional thing God did for those particular people in those places. Is that right? Well, let me just say that when God writes with his own finger on tablets of stone, that's not symbolizing provisionality. Uh, and they kept the Ten Commandments in the Ark of the Covenant at the center of the people. And here's where bad covenant theology hurts us. These are good Bible-believing people actually teaching throughout America that the Ten Commandments are not valid anymore because they don't understand how it relates to us. But it's interesting, they'll often say, and this is increasingly common in Reformed-leaning Baptists and Bible churches, 
Uh, they'll often make the argument that uh, against the Sabbath, for instance, they'll argue that the Sabbath is invalid in the in, in our age. And I always go, well, you know, it's like one of the Ten Commandments. So which so is adultery? Is that not is, you know is the seventh commandment not valid? Why the fourth? And they'll they'll say, well, the ninth says the fourth commandment, honor the honor the Lord, honor the Sabbath, is not found in the New Testament. When you hear somebody say that, check it out. Because it turns out, and I always go, except the time where it is. When Jesus in the Olivet Discourse says, pray it's not on the Sabbath. He's looking forward into the church age. And he's talking about the validity of the Sabbath regulation. And so, yes, the Reformed faith and covenant theology sees the Ten Commandments passing through to us effectively unchanged. Because of the nature of them. And it's a big deal. Uh, if someone says to you, well, the Ten Commandments aren't valid today, run. Run. Will there be another covenant after the new covenant? No. That's what Paul, part of what Paul means when he says, we are, we are those on whom the end of the ages have come. It's the last covenant. Christ is the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning. The new covenant will come to its consummation in the new heavens and the new earth, the land and the seed promised to Abraham. All right, uh, I'll stop right there. You know, I thought to myself, I don't have much to say tonight, but you may think differently now that I'm done. So let me just pray. Uh, Father, thank you for these great and precious truths. And I, I know I cover a lot quickly, but I pray that we, we would get the understanding of it. That you're a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. And the, the history of humanity and of this world is shaped by your covenant dealings with your creatures. And Father, we, we realize we have a big problem that you very rightly made that covenant of works with Adam and you demanded obedience and our father and we were in him. We broke that covenant and so we rightly die and we suffer and we, we, we bear the marks of sin at such a deep level. But thank you for that grace that caused you to call Abram out of the land of Ur and to make promises pertaining to us. So Father, as you intend in your word, let the study of covenants Cause us to see how sure are the things that we receive, the promises we receive through faith in Jesus, that they are sure and certain they are sealed in your covenants. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.